Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, welcome everyone, everybody watching online, YouTube, Facebook, glad you're here, folks in church at home groups who are watching, welcome back, and of course our friends at Hohog, uh, if you're not with us at the waterfront this morning, then you're watching this uh, at Hohog and our, our campus in East Wheeling, I want to say welcome, excited that you're here. Uh, last week we did, I just want to catch you up, give you an update on something. Last week we kind of put a call out for donations to help get Christians out of Afghanistan. These are people who have converted to Christianity or who are pastors or missionaries that are going to be left behind in Afghanistan and are destined to be killed by the Taliban. The Taliban has said they're going to burn them to death. And so we're trying to get them out as fast as we can. We did about three or four days of fundraising for that. You all gave... Uh, uh, over $16,000 in just a couple of days. That's going to get four people out. That's four people who will be alive, uh, who are going to be living their lives, worshiping God, uh, and uh, that wouldn't be otherwise. So thank you. Way to go, Vineyard Church. Way to exceed expectations, as you always do. Uh, I do want to ask us all to be praying for what's going on in Afghanistan as that situation continues to unfold and and, and uh, get these people out. It's going to take a lot of miracles, and it's going to go far beyond uh, the end of August, uh, and it's going to be kind of sketchy. So they need our prayers. Please be praying. Um, well, we've been following along uh, through the book of Mark uh, with Jesus, and, and there's a theme that is unfolding in his teaching, and that theme is this. It's, if you want to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. Now, a cross in Jesus's day was a little bit different than a cross in our day. A cross in our day is a little gold thing that you wear around your neck. It's a, it's a decorative piece, an accessory, if you will. In Jesus's day, a cross was an execution device. And so what Jesus was saying is not put on your accessory. He was saying, you need to die to yourself, deny yourself. He talks about going to the end of the line. If you want to be first go to the end of the line, be a servant of all, deny yourself, it's not about you. Now last week at the end, Myron talked a little bit about the children coming to Jesus and how the disciples were sending the kids away. And Jesus was like, no, 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 let the children come unto me. And in fact, if you don't become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And, uh, and, and when you think about it, again, children in their culture uh, were not highly thought of. They were not like today uh, where children are kind of the center of our universe. Children were, were more like property. They were the lowest of the low. Uh, and again, so this is that whole dying to yourself thing that Jesus, I think, is hitting on here. But he's also hitting on this idea of being dependent, you see, kids are dependent. They're, they're unable to do for themselves. They, they are fully dependent on someone else they, they, for love, for compassion, mercy, grace, provision, all of it. They are looking to someone else. They are not thinking, well, I got this all on my own, right? They understand their dependence. And I think Jesus is playing both sides of, of being like a child. Look, you, you, it's 
You have to be dependent. It's not about you and what you can do, and it's not all about you. And, again, dying to ourselves. The, the, see, and that's the problem with religion. That's the problem that Jesus is taking on in the Judaism of their day and, and where their, their faith was. It was all about you. It was about what you could do. And really, when we look around at world religions, it's the same thing. All world religions are really about us, about what we can do. You know, if, if you work hard, you can work your way to God. If, if, you, if you do more good than bad, you can find your way. You know, God has to accept you, but you're going to have to work hard at being good and getting all that together. Um, and uh, just, a, a, you know, that's, that's, that's it. Follow the rules, do these practices, more good than bad, and you're in. But the problem with that is that it's all about you and your independence and what you can do to get God to accept you. And the problem with that, the problem with that is that the issue between us and God is sin. God is perfect and holy and pure. And we are not. We are sinful. We have sinned. We are sinning. And we will sin. And, and so God can't intermingle with sinfulness because there's no sin in him. And, and so we think, well, I need to get my act together so that God can accept me. Well, that doesn't take care of the sin that even if you could live perfectly from this point forward, it doesn't take care of the sin in your life up to this point. And this is why Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. He's going to stand in and pay the penalty, which is death, for all of my sin, all of your sin, past, present, and future. He's going to die for it all. He's solving the problem. But this shifts it shifts religion, really. It's, it, it's, and and it's a lot of times we'll say Christianity isn't about religion. It's, it's about a relationship with God, and it's about what Jesus has done, and all the other religions are really about what we have to do, right? Christianity, ultimately, we are dependent upon Jesus, not what we can earn. It's not about you. And in today's passage, he shares the key that unlocks that forgiveness in our life. And I want to give you a little spoiler alert. That key that unlocks the forgiveness in our life that comes from Jesus, it's not a prayer. It's not going to church regularly. And it's not certainly not being a fan and a supporter of Jesus. So with that said, let's turn to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 17 today. And this is what it says. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right, so this guy runs up to Jesus. He gets down on his knees and he's like, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know a few things about this guy. As we read on in this passage in Mark, we find out that he is very wealthy. He's a rich man. If you read uh, Matthew's uh, encounter and account of this, we find out that he's a young man. And if you read Luke's encounter, uh, we find out that he is a ruler as well. He's got power and some political sway. So this has become known as the, the, the encounter with with the rich young ruler. And so he's rich, he's young, he's got a lot of runway ahead of him, and he's powerful, he is a ruler. And 
one of the things you need to know about wealthy rulers in Jesus's day is they did not run. They had people for that. They hired people. They had servants. They, it was considered undignified for a well-to-do person to run. And they certainly don't get down on their knees in front of somebody and beg them for an answer. And that's what this guy is doing. He's desperate. He is wrestling with something. He is breaking all the norms and customs, and he is on his knees before Jesus going, I got to get an answer to this question. He's asking a question that most of us will ask because, as the Scripture says, eternity is written in our hearts. I mean, this guy has this life covered, right? He's got it all going for him. He's rich, so he's got options. He's, uh, he's young, he's got runway, he's got a lot of life ahead of him, he's going to grow and influence and power, and he is a ruler already at a young age. This life I've got taken care of, I've got the answers, I can fix the problems, I got the resources, but the next life, not so much. I'm not so sure what I'm going to do, and I need an answer to this. And this guy, I, my guess is, if he was willing to run, if he was willing to get down on his knees before Jesus and ask this question, this was keeping him up at night. He was wrestling with this question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? Something deeply in his heart was missing, and he was feeling it. In verse 18, it says, Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? Now, he addresses Jesus as good teacher. Now, the word that he uses specifically in the original language for good there is not like, hey, man, I had a good steak last night, or my kids are really good. The the word that he uses for good in the original language uh, has a connotation of perfection. He knows who Jesus is. He's heard of what Jesus has done. And so he's like, you know, perfect teacher. He, he uh, He stops short of calling him God, but it's like, okay, you are God. And so Jesus is like, why would you call me? Why would you call me good? Why would you call me perfect? Why would you call me Lord or, or God? Um, only God is God. Only God is perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a little rub here because for the last 10 chapters, Jesus has been claiming to be God. He calls himself 82 times the, uh, the son of man or the son, the son of God in reference to Daniel where it talks about the son of God. He, he believes he's God. He is forgiving sins. He's walking on water. He's healing people. He's delivering people. He's multiplying food. He's doing God things. He's claiming to be God very clearly. But yet here he's like deflecting. Why would you call me God? Why, why would, well, only God is is good. Why only God is perfect? Why would you? Why would you? What gives? And I think what he's doing here is he's calling this guy out. He's like, "Don't call me Lord if I'm not Lord for you. Don't call me God if I'm not God for. I mean, if I were God, you would do what I asked you to do, right? Like if God were God in your life, you would do what he asked, right? I mean, you would, whatever, whatever he asked, you would do that if, if, he, if he were God. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Like, if I were God, you'd do what I asked. You have the right title, but you're not living out me as God in your life. So why would you call me that? And, and there's a little dance going on here between Jesus and this guy. So you got to catch that nuance. 
You know, we do this all the time. We'll come to God and, and oh, oh, God, or Lord, help me with this, do that. And I can just see Jesus going, why would you call me God? I'm not God over this area of your life. I'm not God over that area. I think sometimes he does this dance with us as well. Why do you call me God? You're not treating me like I'm God. Well, in verse 19, he goes on, he says, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your mother and father. And so Jesus goes down the rules, the list of rules. You know, this is the stuff we learn in Sunday school. This is how you live a good life, a moral life, follow the Bible, do the right things. And the guy, and I love the guy's answer. I think it's so profound. Again, an insight into what this guy is wrestling with. He says, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, I want you to hear the desperation in his voice, right? These are the rules. Everybody knows the rules. He's been following the rules, but here he is on his knees before Jesus going, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I have been living all of it. And here he goes, I've, I've done all these since I was a boy. You can, can almost hear the quivering in his voice. It's like, like, yeah, I know that part. I've been going to church. I've been following the rules, but something is missing. And I can feel it right here. I know it, it keeps me up at night. Something's missing. And it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that line. I think Jesus, when we are willing to wrestle with God, I think Jesus loves that. Like there's an authenticity in this guy that Jesus is just drawn to. He loves this guy. He's rooting for him. He wants him to get it. He's really seeking. He's really trying. He's genuinely struggling. And Jesus responds to that, emotionally responds to that. Well, and then Jesus says this, and again, this is the dance that's going on between Jesus and this guy. He says, one thing you lack, he said. One thing. Now, if it were me, I would be really excited at this point because I've got a whole notebook full of things that I got to be working on. But this guy only had one thing. But we got to remember, this is a dance. Jesus is going back and forth with this, this guy. And he does what Jesus is so good at doing. To this very day, Jesus is good at doing this, putting his finger on the one thing in our life that we hold in higher regard than him. Putting, our, putting his finger on the thing that we are at risk of worshiping, of, of looking to for security and for, for life rather than him. And he does it to this guy as well. It's part of the journey. It really is part of the journey for all of us. And this is what Jesus says. He says, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And he says, then come follow me. It's an invitation. He gets an invitation to follow Jesus. Pretty exciting. But it says that, that at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus put his finger on the one thing, his hope the source of his control and power, the source of his stature and reputation, his independence, his identity, and said, I tell you what, you sacrifice these things for me and follow me and you, you will have what you're looking for. You put me first in your life 
and you are going to find what you're looking for. But don't just try and add me to your life. Well, it says in verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. In the end, no matter how significant the empty in this guy's heart was, he was not willing to walk away from his stuff. And, uh, and Jesus, that's what he called him to. And it says his disciples were amazed. Now, why would they be amazed? I mean, wouldn't that be, be pretty normal? They're, they're, that somebody would not want to part with all their stuff? Yes, that would be normal. But what they were amazed at is when Jesus said, it's very hard for people who have lots of stuff to enter the kingdom of God. And he was challenging, again, a challenging a paradigm that they had. They were, they were under the, the assumption that people who had lots of stuff, people who were rich, well, they were God's favorites, right? And if you read the Old Testament, which would have been their Bible, if you read especially the Psalms and the Proverbs, there are passages that indicate, you know, your barns will overflow and you'll be blessed and you'll have this and, and, uh, and, and, and God will pour out plenty in your, in your life. And all of those things are true. I mean, look, if you follow God's laws and his principles for handling finances and doing life, you tend to do better than the rest of the world around you who are all just living by their appetites. I mean, that's just the way it works. But what they had done is they had, had twisted it to mean that the people who had lots were God's favorite people. And if they can't get into the kingdom of God, how are we going to get in? I mean, how can anybody get in to the kingdom of God? Well, it says, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when I was growing up, I heard this story about the eye of a needle. I don't know, maybe you've heard this too, that, that Jesus was, was referring to a little gate in the side of the city wall. See, the, the main gates were closed at night, so bandits couldn't just ride in and, and overtake the city. But there was a little gate on the side of the wall that it was kind of like a man door. You could get through. And if you needed to get a camel through, you could, but the camel would have to get down on its knees and you'd have to take all the baggage off the camel and then it would have to kind of scurry through. And it was really a lot of hard work and, and uh, all of that. And that was the eye of the needle, and that's what Jesus was referring to. The only problem with that is that there is no historical record of a door on the side of a, a city uh, wall that's called an eye of a needle. Somebody made that up at some point, it caught on and it spread. That's not really true, and that's not the point. The point that Jesus is making is not we have to, you know, work really hard to get into the kingdom of God if we're rich. That was not the point. The point was it's impossible. It's impossible for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's Im impossible. Now, I know that is incredibly uncomfortable for some of us, some of us who are, are well off. It should be uncomfortable for all of us because every one of us who lives in the United States of America is in the category of rich. We'll talk about that in a moment. At this, it says in verse 26, 26 the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then 
can be saved. Again, if this hashtag blessed guy can't be saved, if it's impossible because you're not going to take a camel through the eye of a needle, that's what he was talking about. It's impossible. If he can't, then who can? He's blowing up their paradigm. He's turning their world upside down. They have a lot to process. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, a very important part. It says, he looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. You're never going to work your way in. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. With man, and, and in our own human capacities, we will never, ever die to ourselves. But when we invite God into the process, it becomes possible. But we can't do it without him. It's not about your independence and your ability to solve problems and your ability to work hard and your ability to get things done. It is about God, his, his sacrifice, his presence, and his power at work within us that we would be able to die to ourselves because we will never do it on our own. We can make the choice, but it's... It is in God's power alone that that happens for the rich, for the poor, for anybody. So my question today is this, what is your one thing? What is the one thing you lack? For many of us, it is our wealth. Jesus hits the topic of, of wealth over and over and over and over again. He calls it mammon, which, which meant money and stuff, money and stuff. And some of us like money and some of us like stuff and some of us like money because we like stuff and some of us like money because we like money. But, but it's money and stuff. What He knew this was going to be the primary competition for first place in our life with God. He knew that. That's just, that is the nature of how the world works. And so for many of us, and I would say if you live in the United States of America, which most of us do, this is going to be an issue for you because we're rich. Even our poor people are rich. You live in the United States of America, you're in the top 5% of the wealthiest people on the planet. There's a billion people that are going to go to bed hungry tonight. In the United States of America, our poor people drive cars and have big screen televisions. We have stuff. We have self-sufficiency. We have a lot. Compared to the, even this rich young ruler, we have a lot. And every one of us will have to decide how we're going to handle that stuff, how we're going to handle our wealth. Now, disclaimer, because I know there's some of us that are going like, well, then I have to go sell everything? And I, Maybe, I don't know, what's Jesus saying to you? There's only one time in the Scripture that Jesus ever says to somebody, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And that's this particular account. Uh, and we have to read scripture in its totality. You know, there's another time Jesus comes into Jericho and there's a guy named Zacchaeus who's very rich. And he, uh, he and Jesus connect and Jesus goes and has dinner at Zacchaeus' house. And, and it, halfway through dinner, Zacchaeus stands up and goes, I am having a come to Jesus moment and I am giving half of what I have to the poor. 
and I'm going to make restitution for the wrong that I've done and all this other stuff. And, 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 and Jesus is like, well, salvation has come this day to this house. Way to go, Zacchaeus. And the rich young ruler's like, can I get in on the Zacchaeus plan? Because 50% sounds better. If I could do 50%, and that's what we're, but that's what needed to happen for Zacchaeus. There's an, in the book of Acts, there's a woman uh, named Lydia in the, in the village of Philippi who has uh, a business selling purple cloth and is very, very wealthy. There's no indication that she was ever commanded to, to sell everything and give it away or sell anything and give it away, although I'm sure she supported the people in her community generously because that's what we Christians do. And she was considered a righteous lady. Guys, the question isn't, are we supposed to sell everything or not? You're going to have to work that out with God. God does not do that over and over again in the Bible. That is not a normative pattern. But what is, is that we are called to. We are, when Jesus puts his finger on that one thing in our life and says, but this one thing, we are called to surrender it unequivocally to him. He needs to be first. Is it yours or is it his? You want to know the secret to handling money in this life? Under coming to the conclusion and the understanding that it's not yours. It all belongs to him. And you get to manage it. And once you get your head and your heart around that, man, money becomes a tool rather than a God. If your goal is to get more and more money, money will eventually become your God. But if your goal is God, money is a powerful tool. You have to make that decision. And for most of us living in this country with the plenty that we have, God's finger sooner or later is going to end up on that one thing in your life. But there are other things. In the Old Testament, Abraham, all he wanted was a son. And God gives him a son names him Isaac, and Isaac grows up, and God comes to him one day and says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham loads him up and takes him up to the mountain and builds an altar and ties up his son, the one thing he cherished more than anything else, his hope for the future and everything was in Isaac. And Abraham puts him on the altar, and he has got the knife in the air, and he is ready to come down and sacrifice Isaac his son and an angel stops him and says, whoa, whoa, God, we just needed to know you were in, right? We just needed to know that you weren't worshiping Isaac over God. Now, I don't know if Jesus would have said, whoa, whoa, don't sell everything at the last minute to this guy. Probably not, but we don't know. But what's the one thing? And are you willing to sacrifice it, to surrender it completely to Jesus What's your one thing? We tempted, we're tempted to worship our kids much like Abraham. We worship our sexuality, our pleasure, our hobby, and our sports, our happiness, our career, our image. What is it for you? Jesus is calling you to surrender everything to him. Your personal preferences, your lifestyle, yes, surrender that to anything you're putting your hope in besides him. Money, education, a dream that you want God to kind of be in on. He's not going to be a part of your dream. He wants you to be a part of his. Maybe it's your spouse. See, what Jesus is teaching here is total surrender. 
And here's the thing about total surrender as a human being. It's imperfect at best. You're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. You're going to blow it sometimes. But if you've made the decision to follow Jesus and to make him Lord of every part of your life, to put Jesus first in every part of your life, God's grace rushes into all that. And if you're wrestling with it, and you're daily choosing to surrender and follow him, his grace, his presence, his power rushes in and makes up the difference. And you don't walk around going, yeah, I know I've done all that, but, but what about? Because there's something missing, because there is nothing missing. So many Christians today ask the same question. They ask it in different words, but ask the same question that this, this young man asked Something's missing. I've done all the right religious churchy things, but something is missing, and it's because Jesus isn't Lord of everything. What is God calling you to surrender? What is ahead of him in your life? Let me invite you to give it to him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would put your finger on the one thing for each one of us, and it might be different for each one of us, but show us. And God, I pray that you would put in our hearts a hunger to live totally surrendered to you and a willingness to offer it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.